Father, as we're here before you, Lord, we're humbled. We're almost speechless that our names could be included with the name of your dear son, Jesus. A name that is above all names. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a wonderful name. What an amazing name to be associated with. We're grateful. We're humble before the name of Jesus. Lord, as we look into your word today, may we be empowered by that name and through your spirit to see what you have for us, that we might live lives that are worthy of that name and your calling. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So I spent uh, 20 years in the Air Force as a chaplain, and one of my, one of my primary roles was to uh, defend, or really maintain, but sometimes it came down to defending the First Amendment. That military chaplains understand that the only reason religious professionals are paid by the United States government is because of the First Amendment. Simply because a military member is uh, placed in an austere or hostile environment uh, in no way means that they lose their constitutional freedoms because they're there. And in fact, the United States government incurs, takes on a burden upon itself because they control where you are and when you're there. You don't, (laughs) if you've ever been in the military, you know what I'm talking about. They say, go, you go, and that's the end of that story. Because they have that power, they incur this burden that the constitutional rights that you have go with you. Therefore, where you go, the chaplain goes. First Amendment guarantees the right of all American citizens to practice religion, whatever religion that may be, as they see fit. Now, George Washington understood that, and he established the Chaplain Corps, which I may have mentioned before, but I don't mind at all refreshing your memory on this one, that the Chaplain Corps is second in time only to the United States Infantry. It precedes all other corps, and in fact, precedes the other services as well. Been around for a long time. So why would he establish that almost immediately? Well, it was because he personally understood the words of a Union soldier uh, even before they were spoken. Words that speak for combat vets of all times when he wrote this, there is no man However brave who he may be, 
does not, when the storm begins to rage fiercest around him, when he sees a friend on the right and another on the left stricken down and quivering in the agonies of death, when he sees the serried ranks of his foe coming upon him, undaunted and pouring their deadly fire out toward him, making the air quiver and hiss with the rapid movement of all manner of projectiles from the keen sound of the little bullet that sings on its errand of destruction like the buzzing of a fly to the bombshell that goes by like a thunderbolt overcoming all obstacles, I say, there is no man who when the first waves of such a battle as this surge upon him does not involuntarily and mentally appeal to God for protection. Everyone understands this who's ever been in danger. I, I dare say that the thought that crossed Stan's mind this morning, the first conscious thought would have been, God help me, preserve me. Two seconds. So why is the First Amendment the First Amendment? And why does it contain the substance of what it contains? It's not that difficult. Uh, it's what the framers saw as the sine quo non. That what that is, is uh, this Latin phrase for without which isn't. In other words, if you don't have this, you don't have that. It's the thing that get, makes something possible. So, for example, water is one of the sine qua non for life. No water, no life. There's a direct connect. If you don't have water, you will die. The fledgling United States sine qua non was the First Amendment. So much so that even though the framers understood the things there to be what would be called as self-evident truths, they demanded that they be written down. Do you know why? They knew people would forget. History tells them that they would forget. And they knew that those freedoms would one day be assaulted to use a reference in one of Peter's epistles, the people deliberately forgot certain truths. What do we find in the First Amendment? We find freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition, and freedom of religion. Now, some of you knew all those, but I bet some of them are a surprise to you. Those are the five things that are found there. And they're so important that if any one of them falls, the nation as framed falls. And as Christians, another constitution is of vital importance to us. And that's when Israel became a nation. Their constitution was given to them on Mount Sinai. When the Lord gave them the sine qua non of their new theocratic kingdom. And what would that be? The first commandment. And why is it first? For the same reason that the first amendment is first. And that is without it, nothing else follows. 
There is nothing that could follow without those things. So understand that the statement that we find in Exodus 20, in uh, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, we're going to look primarily at verse 3, but the whole piece there. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is the substance of God's kingdom program. And, and the command deserves a fairly close look because it remains as true then uh, as it, uh, or as true now as it did then. Because without it, Israel would not exist. Without it, Judaism would fall. Without it, Christianity would fall as well. You know, for, for nearly a year now, um, our nation has been navigating a, a, a wilderness. I mean, it's not like anything that we, any of us, have seen in our lifetimes as a, as a national uh, hit. It, certainly, people have been struck individually uh, with tragedies and things along that. But as a national uh, weight, we've not seen anything like that. And while it's not unique to our country's history, it is uh, something that we've not experienced is notable in a time uh, for us now. And there are a few things I want to mention, one of which is the reason for the wilderness here is the same reason for the wilderness in at Sinai. They were going through a desert journey when they were given their these uh, Ten Commandments. And the reason that's important is because it's times like this where we're tempted. You, do you, do you recall when Jesus was tempted? It was when he was uh, sitting with his disciples uh, eating grapes and, and feasting, right? It was when he was in the wilderness. It was when he was alone with his own thoughts. It's when he was faced with scarcity in terms of shelter, in terms of food, that's when he was tempted. And we too, I mean, we, we find ourselves tempted in, in this way when we, we need fellowship. Sometimes there are ways to break the bonds of loneliness that are not advisable, that are ill-advised, in fact, in some cases, wrong. When we're alone with our thoughts, sometimes we move towards helplessness. Sometimes we move towards despair, certainly a lack of peace. When we're in the wilderness, when we're alone, we begin to see flaws in our character. Maybe we, we begin to have this sense that we're actually more selfish than we thought we were. We're not as giving as we want to be. Our compassion runs uh, short. We're more impatient, less understanding, quicker to judge. And then there's worse things, jealousies and greed and whatever all else. And those all stem from the journey in the wilderness. If, if, I mean, just some practical reasons. There are other reasons, but the reason the Lord wants us to gather together is to stop that kind of thinking. You know, the best way to assist some of the 
things that go on in your mind when you are alone or to say them to somebody else. And when you do that, you go, huh, (laughs) I guess uh, it's not quite as sinister out there as it is inside here, you know, and or you'll get some good, you know, some good feedback uh, from that. The first commandment came in a desert, a wilderness context. I mean, and, and there were a number of problems here. But one, you had the Israelites had been taken out of Egypt. But as uh, Yoda or somebody might say, Egypt had not been taken out of the Israelites. They had a real problem, especially during this time. And they were experiencing all the scarcities. But do you know there's something worse than experiencing all the things that I've already mentioned? And that is, is when you move from a place of that which is known to that which is unknown and the transition between uh, uh, the known to the unknown and then back to trying to find a new known or a new normal or something like that, that is incredibly upsetting. It's one of the most frightening things that we have even about these days. What will come next? So I asked at a place the other day, I said, when can I get my shot? I want my shot. You know what? They didn't say, what shot are you talking about? Right? Yeah. And you know what the answer was? For me? We don't know. Well, if you don't know, and you're, you know, and you're supposed to know, how am I supposed to know? I don't know. You don't know. Do you know anybody that knows? Nobody knows. Right? It's, it's upsetting. It's, it's disquieting. It makes us uh, feel like, what is going to come next? Where will it end? We don't know. I mean, most of the time, when we commiserate with Israel and the Bible, you know, we, it's, it's all metaphor. It's, it's all illustrative. It's all symbolic. Well, that's becoming less so. I certainly am not making a direct comparison by any means, but nevertheless... These are real stresses. These are real strains. And we actually do feel them. And it actually does impact our relationships with others. It actually does impact our relationship with God. And we have to be careful every day how we handle this. So when we look at the first commandment, we find that there are three and if you're, you probably have already memorized this, but if you haven't, you just go over to Exodus 20 and verse 3. We're going to find that three significant questions are answered. The first one is who God is. Uh, the second one is what God has done. And finally, what our response should be. First, the answer to the question, who God is. So God, God tells them, uh, this is who I am. And so what he did was he began by reminding them, in essence, of something that we had already seen in Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses in a bush that burned, but that was not consumed. And it was from there that he commissioned Moses to set the people free. And Moses... Uh, <laughs> It's really a funny exchange when you listen to God uh, talk to, to, uh, to Moses. I, I certainly am not saying that I would do or anyone else would do any better. 
But uh, this is not one of the more problematic discussions, but he had a lot of questions and a lot of insecurities. And this he says, if, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Well, what have they been calling him for 400 years in Egypt? I mean, this is, seems like a silly question. Had they forgotten entirely who the God of Abraham and and Isaac, had he, uh, Jacob, so he says this in uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, I am who I am, <laughs> uh, which I suppose technically could be translated, I, I was who I was, or I will be who I will be, it's just kind of a state of being uh, verb there, I am uh, who I am, and he says this also, he says, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you, me to you. Thus you shall say, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. So essentially, what he's saying here is that the God who appeared to the Israelites at Mount Sinai is no stranger. He was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He was their God all the way through the captivity. He is the one who is meeting them now from the beginning. And his names are, they're, they're really loaded. We can only look at a few little things about them, but we will we'll pull a couple of threads here because the names that he uses have references built in or built into the literature surrounding them, this notion of creation and eternality. So when God, uh, God claims, uh, he, well, actually, he has a claim on you as he's using these names. The first one is uh, Lord, and that is the Hebrew word which we're familiar with. Yahweh, and we don't know that that's precisely how it's pronounced. I don't think it really matters that much, but that would be the name. They didn't use vowels. Hard to, it's hard to find vowels. You have to use context. So it could have been any uh, number of variety of vowels in there. But anyway, that name, and based on his own uh, words about that name, signify his self-existence his eternality, his sovereignty. But secondly, the uh, second word that's used there, not Lord with all caps, but God, is Elohim. And that word is signifying his majesty and his power, which points back to creation. In fact, Isaiah develops the whole creative power of God based on this name, uh, Elohim. In fact, one might say creator, uh, as, and, and that was, is almost a synonym with, with Elohim. And so why does that matter? It matters because God has a claim on you because he created you. He gave you life. And that expression, I am the Lord your God, 
represents God's authority over you. And then second, he says, this is what I did. So I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, I have zero concept of what it would be like to live life as a slave. In fact, the notion that people could be legal chattel, chattel, if you're not familiar with that term, is a, a, a word that is designated for personal property other than real estate. It disgusts me. It goes on today. To, today. We thought it was done. It's not, it's not done. There are countries around the world that still engage quite heavily in this. But I do know something. It's not that I don't know anything about it. I do know something because I, I was enslaved to sin. And as an adult, having been saved, one might say barely as an adult, but I've already been in the army for a couple of years. I do understand what that was like. And I do understand that while I was in the army, the Lord Jesus Christ freed me from my sin. And I know what it's like to be freed. And I was free indeed. And it was the spiritual energy, actually literally from that moment, that drives me to this day. It's never had to have been recovered or restored. It was just simply present with me then and and drives me now. So if that is what spiritual delivery is, and that's my experience of it, I, I hope you rehearsed your own experience of yours as I was speaking, what would it have been like to literally, physically have been freed? And so that the Israelites would have been delivered from the lash of Pharaoh or the knee on their neck. God said, I'm the one who did this. I set you free. Romans six fifteen through 18 says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And so as believers, God has this double claim on you. Salvation and creation. He, we Owe everything to him. So finally, after he's told us who he is and what he has done, he tells us what our response should be. Very simply, have no other gods before you, before me. And that's, I mean, that's it. God wants to be 
first, demands to be first, commands to be first in their lives and in ours. Now, interestingly here, the the Hebrew can be translated as don't let uh, anyone else become God to you. That's an interesting look at it. I don't know that's the primary way I would look at it, but when you look at the other, which we can't go into in Deuteronomy and some of these other places, what you find is that there is this initial rush. There's this initial uh, belief so that they're all like, yes, 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 yes. But Deuteronomy tells us what? Hey, you know what? When you get into this land of milk and honey, and when you're sleeping in that house that you didn't build, and when you're eating from those grapes that you didn't grow, and those crops that you didn't plant, you know what you're going to do? You're going to start looking for other gods. And so it's possible that you can have a, 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 a sense of uh, the full focus upon God for a time as you're coming out of slavery and into righteousness and His presence. But after a while, you know, a little life of ease, you start saying, ah, you know what, uh, that, was, that was then. And actually, you know, I'm not so sure that He had all that much to do with it. You know, I, I, I was there. I had a little part in that myself. And you're going to start looking for other gods. Don't let anyone else become that. And I think that admonition is true for us as well. Sometimes there's great flares of service in our, in our hearts, in our minds, and, and worship uh, for God. But then, in, you know, we get in front of a video game or a TV or sports or whatever it might be. And suddenly that begins to slip. Now, I'm not saying you can't play a video game. I'm not saying don't watch sports or whatever it may be. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I'm talking about God's place in your heart. And I also want to point out something, too, that's not uh, evident in English. And that the you here is uh, you, right? Have no other gods. I, I... So I can't help myself with some of these things. So I like to play with these words a little bit because they have interesting possibilities. The you here, one would think, is plural. It is not. It is singular. Now, of course, when you say singular, then you go, okay, well, of course it would be singular because he's talking to the nation of Israel. Well, there's only one of them, therefore it's singular. But it could also mean that the command itself applies to you personally, to me. That is, as an individual, it's as if God has spoken to each one of us by name. John, you shall have no other gods before you. That's not an impossible take at all. In fact, A.W. Pink wrote this. He said, You, you personally, shall not own, possess, seek, desire, love, or worship any other God. So no matter how you take it, and I prefer to take it for 
to me personally. Somehow or another, it just has power. That's not some ancient commandment that was given to some ancient people some thousands of years ago that's not relevant to me today. No, it's to, it's to me. Let me fill this out just a little bit more. In, in 2006, and oh, I could go any year, any number of authors, but uh, Richard Dawkins wrote his book, The God Delusion. And his argument, of course, was there is no God, and if you believe in God, it's a delusion, therefore you are mentally ill if you believe in uh, God. That's his considered position. Oh, by the way, that's the considered position of many, many people, especially in the, the elite, the so-called intelligentsia and those, those folks. Therefore, uh, you know, you need help. We need we need help. But I'm not talking about atheism today because that wasn't the problem then. There were no atheists, or at least certainly none recorded or even conceivable in any of the writings that we have in the time of Moses. It was just the opposite. They were polytheists. Okay, They lived in a polytheistic world. That is, there were a lot of gods. There were thunder gods and sun gods and earth gods and moon gods and star gods and wandering planet gods and water gods and this god and that god and the other god. They just The place was lousy with gods. And the truth about the one true and living God, I believe, was just as known to them as it is to us. But I believe they had the same problem that, that we have. And that is that we deny that knowledge. We suppress that, a la uh, Romans chapter 1. The truth is, the sinful heart does not want to bow to anyone. Sinful heart doesn't want to bow to your spouse. Doesn't want to bow to your neighbor doesn't want to bow to leaders, doesn't want to bow. So is anyone curious as to why the sinful heart doesn't want to bow to God? Let me tell you something. This is one of my only hopes as God works out his mysterious ways is that the sinful heart does not want to bow to Satan either. The sinful heart is completely and totally unruly. And there's only one way, as I see it, and this is more kind of narrative, I suppose, or illustrative, but it sure, it sure seems like it. Because when you look at the history of Israel, there was only one thing that turned them back to the true and living God. And you know what that was? The Babylonian captivity. Do you know what that was? A return to slavery. In other words, it's when we forget that we've been freed by God that we get into trouble. It's when we forget that we were in slavery to sin and we're now free to righteousness, that's when we get into trouble. And so what he's saying is you've got to stand firm. What Joshua said in uh, his, the book of Joshua in chapter 24, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable, then choose for yourselves this day 
whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Later in 1 Kings, Elijah challenged the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So what are our takeaways this morning? There's a few. First, the first commandment condemns atheism. The belief that there is no God. The command, if nothing else, in fact is a positive one, believe in God. Consequently, the first commandment is a condemnation of atheism. I mean, Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first commandment takes a stand against the materialists like Dawkins, who we mentioned before, who believe the physical world is, that's it. That's all that exists. That's all that's ever existed. It stands against the evolutionists like Darwin, who say that man evolved apart from any divine influence. It stands against the humanists like Aldous Huxley, who believe that man is supreme and determines his own destiny. But second, it also condemns agnosticism. That's the belief that you cannot know. We already mentioned this before, Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. In Romans 1, that I also mentioned before, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that we are without excuse. Third, it condemns polytheism. I've already mentioned that. I won't say more. But finally, it also condemns pantheism, the belief that everything is God. There's also panentheism, which is the belief that God is in everything. But it, regardless, it, it gets rid of all of those things by telling us that God created the world and everything in it. So if... I mean, just that statement right there means that God was before the world that was created. Therefore, he is separate from it. It, Finally, I want us to look at this uh, one last thing. You shall have no other gods before me. I take that apart in these two ways. One is both in priority and then in presence and in terms of priority no gods before me that is there is nothing there's to be nothing in our lives that is before the lord in in terms of importance our loyalty to is is to him and to him alone no rival interest to take up residence you can't serve family 
ambition, pride, money, pleasure, appetite, any of those things, and I could go to verses about all of them, above God. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm saying they cannot be above God. Secondly, before me is also in terms of presence. That means there's no God. So what he's, what he's doing, I mean, read the story of Naaman the Syrian if you want to get a really good picture of what he's saying here. And that is, get them out of my face. <laughs> I don't want, I didn't even want to see them. Get rid of them. So finally, just a few thoughts to kind of put this together to take away. Put God first. Order all your earthly affections under the love of God. Don't serve two masters. You can't. So I should say don't try to. It's not possible. Make those choices every day. Stuart Briscoe put it this way in his book on the Ten Commandments. At the end of each day, ask yourself, was Jesus Christ my Lord today? Did I serve him faithfully today? Did I love him deeply? Did I worship him exclusively I ask that question of myself. I try to every day. I ask that question of you. For without it, without that, without the first commandment, the sine qua non, everything else in your life fails and falls and will be destroyed. But with that, and because of Him, everything is able to stand even even through the end. But first, we must believe that He is. Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for what You have done. And we thank You that You involve us in your plan and your program at all. So thank you, Father. We give you the praise and we give you the glory in the name, the wonderful and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.